The Edge of the World Art Studio is proud to present Helen of the Iron Horse, written by Paris Danielle Lee. Artwork by Helen Rachel Lee. Music by Fish Zombie the Onions. And special thanks to Spooky the Cat for her contributions, fuzzy as they might be. Chapter 114 The Roundabout 1886, March 5th, The Railroad Camp The day after Priam had spoken with Agamemnon, the train pulled out of the camp. So far it had not returned, and Priam assumed that Agamemnon had been on it, because no word from him had come down from the tower and no one had seen him. Three full days passed, and not a single rail had been laid, not a single spike had been hammered into place. The camp was at a standstill, when Priam heard the train. It took the sidetrack to the roundabout and stopped. Men began to pour out of it. They looked big, strong, and white. They unloaded crates. Priam watched in confusion as the men began to open the crates and assemble some sort of machine. They fit each piece into it carefully, tightening bolts and setting it up on wheels. It resembled a kind of cannon, but then they took it to the water tower and began to fill it. What kind of cannon takes water? Priam thought to himself. When it was full, they brought it over and placed it in front of him and his men. They spread out around them. The cannon had three men at it, and the rest of the men carried some sort of weapon. Billy clubs, axe handles, bats. Priam and his workers all took a step back and began to move closer to each other. Agamemnon stepped from the train. He walked to stand in front of the crowd of railroad workers. He looked at Priam in the eyes before he spoke. You have five minutes to return to work. Anyone who does not will suffer the consequences. He said flatly. You can't force us to work, Priam argued. Good sir. That is where you are wrong. Agamemnon turned from them and walked towards the wooden tower. The two of the men at the cannon began to pump a handle as a third aimed at the crowd of workers. Water began to pour from it hard and fast in a long stream soaking everyone. Priam looked down at himself now wet, his boots sticking into the ground that had turned to mud. He looked up to see the men with clubs approaching fast. One of them swung at him. Priam raised his arm, caught the club, and held it as he punched the man in the face. All around Priam, the white men with clubs began to pull out and beat down any worker they could grab. The workers in turn charged, attacking the men, protecting their friends. Three men surrounded Priam. He managed to push one down into the mud, but the other two grabbed him. They held him tight as the first man got up again. He took his club and swung it into Priam's stomach. He bashed him in the legs. He hit him in the chest. Priam couldn't breathe, and he fell, kneeling into the mud. The man took aim, his arm pulling back to swing into Priam's head. A gunshot rang out. Everyone stopped fighting. They looked out to see who had fired what. Hecuba held the gun in the air. Stop. Stop right now. He demanded. Priam wiped the mud from his eyes so he could see. We'll all go back to work. Hecuba said quietly. No! yelled Priam. Don't kill him. We'll go back to work. Hecuba said louder. Put down the gun. 
One of the men holding Priam insisted. Hecuba dropped the gun onto the mud. Now let him go. We'll all return to work. Everyone seemed calm. Their shoulders fell, their heads down. Hecuba walked towards the tool tent. He picked up a hammer and then walked to the unfinished section of the railroad track. Slowly, the workers began to follow him. One of the men kicked Priam and then leaned down to speak. Well, boy, get back to work. No, fuck you. Kill me if you have a problem with it. We're not going to kill you, boy. We've already beaten you. The man dropped the axe handle into the mud and walked off towards the saloon tent with the rest of them. Priam stayed kneeling, right where he had been beaten. Hecuba returned to him to help him up. Come on, let's get you back to the tent. Priam pulled away from his brother and then looked up at him. Get away from me. Get away from me and don't speak to me again. I did what I had to. They were going to kill you. You should have let them. Instead, once again, you made me their slave. You gave my life away and you expect me to thank you for it? Leave me. I don't want to see you again. Priam struggled to stand. He could feel his body was broken in many places. He moved slowly as he turned, limping towards his tent. You can't mean that. You're the only family I have. Hecuba called after him, but he did not turn around. He did not answer. Priam laid on his bed. He did not return to work with the other men. He could barely move now. What was pain had turned to stiffness, and what was stiffness had turned to near paralysis. He was coughing up blood and began to wonder whether he was going to make it or not. Hecuba had not returned. Priam assumed he had taken his place building the railroad. His anger still burned in him. It was the first time in his life he had ever been angry at his brother. But he could not stop it. As he lay coughing up blood, believing he was going to die, he only wished he could see his brother one more time so that he could spit in his face. Priam heard the tent flap open and the shuffling of feet coming into the tent. He thought maybe his wish would come true. When he turned, he saw a beautiful woman. She had tanned skin and long dark hair, braided and then laid across her shoulder. She wore a ruffled top with a bright flowered pattern. She carried a ceramic tureen and a wooden toolbox. She set the tureen and the toolbox down and then pulled Hecuba's chair over to sit next to Priam. Mire, ¿cómo estás? The woman asked him in Spanish. What? Priam asked in return. How are you doing? She asked in English. I'm dying. Leave me in peace to do so. Are you sure that's what you want? I can help you. You know, to not die. Who the fuck are you? First off, I'm a lady, so I'd appreciate it if you treated me with respect. So keep your language sociable. Second, my name is Hecate, and I'm here as a favor to a very old friend of mine. Thirdly, I am a bruja. In your language, you would say witch. I'm willing to use my magic to help heal you. If you do not want me to, I will simply leave and you may die in peace. The woman explained. There's no such thing as witches, Priam insisted. <laughs> you better hope there is. She laughed. All right. How are you going to help me? First, we are going to talk for a while. Then, you will drink the potion I have brought you. After that, when your brother returns, you will apologize for having been an insensitive fool. Me? I have nothing to apologize for. 
I did all of this on his recommendation. I did all of this for him, and how does he repay me? He proves to me that I never did escape the South. I never was free. They own me. I just didn't want to see it. Now I must take their orders. I must build their railroad, or they will kill me. I will never be free. La guerra no es benvenida en la casa de los muertos, she replied, and then poked him in the head. What is that supposed to mean? he asked. It means you cannot fight if you are dead. Your brother understood this. Your war is not over, and victory is not yet lost, but you surrendered. Your brother could see it. He knew you had given up, so he did the only thing he could to keep that from happening. He forced a retreat. He did not betray you. He saved you. For I guarantee you, if he had been one second later, if he had hesitated, you would be dead right now, lying in that mud, and all the men will still have returned to work. I would have had my pride. And a lot of good it would do you in the underworld, she said, as she held out her hands to him, taking his in hers. This next part is going to hurt, a lot, but it's necessary if you want to get better. What are you going to do? Not me. You. You are going to sit up. Hecate pulled his arms. Priam screamed as he sat up and brought his legs around so he was sitting on the bed. Hecate then turned to the ceramic terrine and uncovered it. Suddenly the smell of chicken and spices filled the tent. She took a bowl and a wooden spoon from the wooden toolbox and carried it with her. She set them on the table and pulled out a ladle. She filled the bowl with soup. Priam could see the soup was a dark red in color, and there were whole pieces of chicken in it. She handed it to him along with the spoon. He moved it about. He could see large white pieces of corn swimming in it as well. He looked up at her. Your magic potion is chicken soup? Chicken soup is one of the oldest magic potions in the world, and it's still quite effective. Now eat your soup. She insisted. He tasted it. The warmth of it poured down his throat, and it felt amazing. He began to feel better. He could not tell if he felt less pain or if he just wasn't paying attention to it, because the soup was so good. He took a piece of chicken from it with his hands and bit off some of the meat. Hecate smiled at him. Do you like it? She asked. It's incredible. What do you call it? It's pasole. Enjoy it. I'm going to leave my terrine with you, and there's another bowl and spoon in the toolkit. That's for your brother. Be sure he gets some. Hecate brushed her skirt with her hands and began to leave the tent. Wait! Priam called her back. Yes? What do I do now? How do we win this war? You are going to need allies. Allies beyond just the men who work here. Wait for them. They're on their way. When the time is right... You will know. How will I know? <laughs> there will be fireworks, Hecate said as she left the tent. Hecuba entered the tent cautiously. Priam was still sitting on his bed eating more soup. I was wrong, there's soup, Priam said, making the two sentences sound like they were one statement. Wait, what? His brother asked. There's soup. One of the Mexican girls brought it to us. She made me promise to give you some. There's a bowl sitting next to the terrine. That's for you. No, I don't care about the soup. 
What's this about you being wrong? I'm not going to say it again. You heard me. Now eat. No, you don't. You don't get out of this one. What were you wrong about? Look, I'm sorry for what I said, but this isn't over. I'm not finished with the Baron, and I'm not giving up. I'm just backing down and waiting for our moment. We're not giving up? Kakuba confirmed. No. I will light that tower on fire before I give up. I'm with you all the way. Hecuba promised. In the days that followed, Priam found out that the men from the train were Pinkertons. They were a special team put together and hired specifically to break up unions by harassing, assaulting, and killing strikers. They were the strike breakers. And they stayed in camp. Everywhere Priam went, they followed him. If he stopped to talk to anyone, they came close to listen. If he tried to talk to one of the Chinese workers, they would move in and break up the conversation and push the Chinese worker along. Priam couldn't move without being seen. He couldn't reorganize the workers he now thought of as his men. They were effectively cutting off his ability to communicate, and Agamemnon had outlawed workers gathering together, especially if they were not of the same race. It was Hecuba who eventually found a solution. He learned to write one word in Chinese. He wrote it on a piece of paper and then wrote on the paper in English. Hello, the note said in both English and Chinese. Hecuba knew the wooden elevator was both constructed and run by the Chinese men. So as he passed it one morning, he left the note under a lantern on a crate that was obviously used as a table. The next day, he checked under the lantern and there was a new note left for him. It just said, Yes, they had communication. It was difficult under such scrutiny, but it was happening slowly and literally right under Agamemnon's nose. April 29th, 1886. The train returned and Priam watched it pull into the turnoff. The engine parked in the roundabout. His men rushed to the train and began to organize it, shuffling the cars around and getting the train to go back the other direction. The train had pulled out of camp four days ago. Hecuba had double-checked everything on Agamemnon's private car and attached it before the train left, but he told his brother once it was gone that Agamemnon had not been on it. It left with only the hulking security officer and a few of his men. No one was in the private car. Priam expected the train would only be gone a day. When it returned four days later, he was watching. He sent his men to unload the supplies, only to find the train had none. They returned only with the security officer, a Pinkerton detective, a cavalry captain, a gunslinger, and two women. It was the two women who came out of the private car. One was dressed beautifully, in the nicest and finest dress Priam had ever seen. Her hair was wrapped around in ringlets tied up and tucked under a hat with exotic feathers and tiny sparkling beads and accents. The other woman who followed close behind her was the exact opposite, dressed in men's clothing and a cowboy hat and short, cropped black hair. The woman had leather straps wrapped around her body, holding up an array of guns that Priam could not imagine would be necessary. He watched them get out of the train. The pretty one turned to the gunslinger girl. He saw how they looked at each other, and he saw how their hands touched. Just the tip of their fingers brushed against each other, but he could see the affection in their eyes. 
he could see what the men who were escorting them did not. They were in love. The two women separated, one heading up to Agamemnon's tower, and the other with the security officers to the tent. Priam did not know what this meant. He understood something was happening, and the girl with the gun seemed familiar. He remembered a story he was told. He hadn't believed it. Months ago, a girl supposedly beat the security officer in a fight, the big one with the scars. Priam kept his eyes on the security tent, watching from a shadow, when a man stood next to him and began to watch the tent with him as well. Priam looked over. He was short, with dark hair. He couldn't quite make out what race he was. But with the dark hair and the roundish face, Priam's best guess was... Sorry, are you Chinese? Not anymore, Orpheus answered. What's that supposed to mean? It has been a long life, my longest so far, and I have been many things. But the thing I am most proud of is that I have been a father, and in a way, I have you to thank for that, although you won't understand why. Have you seen my daughter, Annabelle? I don't know an Annabelle. Well, you'd know her if you saw her. She's about so tall, dark hair like mine, and wearing way too many guns. Oh, her, yeah, she's in that tent over there. Who are you? My name's Orpheus, and you're King Priam. Orpheus held out his hand to shake. Priam looked at him strangely and then answered, I don't know who that is. My name is John, and I'm no king. I would argue with you about that. But for now, we'll just agree one of us is wrong. Orpheus kept his hand out until Priam finally shook it. They turned back to watch the security tent, and suddenly, from the tent, Paris came rolling out, sliding into the dust. Orpheus watched her try to get back on her feet when Achilles stormed out and kicked her, throwing her further across the camp. Ooh, well, I better go do something about that, Orpheus said, leaving Priam behind, watching from the shadows. She's my wife! I'm not leaving without her! Priam heard the girl yell. He knew it. He fucking knew it. She's not your wife. The Pinkerton detective yelled as Orpheus finally approached. Priam didn't know what to make of it. There was some more conversation he couldn't hear, and then he watched Paris and Orpheus leave together. What was that about? He thought to himself. It was good drama, and it would be fun to gossip about, but he didn't think this was going to help him. He went back to his tent to tell Hecuba all about it. May 1st, 1886. May Day. There were fireworks. Priam laughed as he watched the rocket streak into the sky. He was beginning to believe the witch had lied to him. He looked for her, sending notes around the camp asking about her. The Chinese men knew nothing of her, and the Mexicans who worked in the camp told him that though Bruja was indeed a witch... Hecate was not a Mexican name. But now there were fireworks. And as the men scrambled to put them out, Priam watched the gunslinger girl return. He saw her dressed all in black. She'd come from the far side of the camp, sneaking through the tents, passing right by him. He followed her until she reached the tower. She went for the steps. No, they might see you. It'll take too long. Come over here, he instructed. Paris turned to look at him her hand slipping over her holster. Who are you? Paris asked. 
Don't shoot me. I'm a friend. I don't know you. I want to help. You're going to go up and get that pretty girl, aren't you? Get in the elevator. I'll pull you up. Lay down so no one sees you in it. Why are you helping me? She asked. Because my enemy's enemy is my friend. And I have a feeling you're about to hurt the Baron more than I can. Priam answered. All right, then. Let's go. Paris crouched down on the floor of the wooden elevator. Priam worked the ropes himself, pulling the wooden structure up into the air. He watched her enter the tower. It wasn't long before he saw the two girls come out together. They were holding hands as they re-entered the elevator. He began to lower it. When they got to the ground, Paris tipped her hat to him. Thank you, she said. Good luck, he told them, and they ran off. Priam went back to his tent. Hecuba stormed in. My train! They fucking blew up my train! He yelled, wait, stop. Who blew up your train? All the fireworks were obviously some sort of distraction so they could attack the train. The only real explosion. Someone threw dynamite into the coal cart. The coal cart is destroyed. The engine is severely damaged. Most of the instruments are broken. My train is fucked. Okay, calm down. To start with... That's not your train. I want you to remember this for a second. That's the Baron's train, and if somebody is going to hurt the Baron, then they're on our side. I've been waiting for allies. These may be them. But my train... Hecuba said, defeated. He sat down on the bed. Okay, I know you were in love with that train, and I'm sure your heart is broken, but again, that train ain't yours. I'm not in love with a train, Hecuba said, but something about the way he said it told them both the statement wasn't entirely true. The chaos of the night before led to the confusion of the day after. The white overseers, the Pinkerton strikebreakers, and the detective in the shiny shoes moved about the camp collecting carts and horses. No one was following Priam around anymore. No one was watching the men working on the railroad. Priam held out his hand and stopped. His men stopped with him. Looking out over the camp, he ordered his men to put their tools away and go back to the tents. Nervously, they did so. But no one seemed to care. The strikebreakers made no note of it as they prepared to leave the camp. Hecuba collapsed onto his bed, stared at the canvas of his tent, and let out a large breath. Priam, sitting near him, asked, Okay, what's wrong? They're not going to fix the train. They're not even going to Denver. Where are they going? Ilium, the little town we passed back in January. Is that about that girl? Yeah, apparently it was his wife. The Baron's wife? No shit. No shit. Excuse me? A voice came from outside the tent. Hello? Priam called back to the voice. Excuse me. Castor's head popped into the tent. I'm sorry to disturb you. Are you the union leader and his brother? Who the fuck are you? Castor entered the tent. Priam looked at him, dressed in a tuxedo, pressed and sharp. He had never seen someone so out of place. I'm really sorry to disturb you, but I need your help. Look, I don't know what the fuck you want, but I don't know you. And, from the looks of you, I don't trust you. Why don't you just go back to wherever it is you came from? I understand. And, if I weren't desperate, 
then I would just leave, but I really do need your help, you and your brothers. And I think I can help you. How can you help me? Your union. All of its demands. I can make them happen. How? The Baron has made a slight tactical error, that if we capitalize on, could shift the control of the rail company to me. If you help me, and that happens, then the demands you have made for your men, I will honor them. Fuck you. Fuck you and whatever nonsense you try and bring into this tent. I don't trust you. You're just another white asshole who wants something from us and is going to give us nothing in return. I don't work without being paid. I don't work on hopes and promises. All right. What will it take? Do you want a contract? I can have one written up. It won't be good until the railroad is mine, but as soon as it is, the contract will take effect. No. You know what I want? I don't want any piece of shit overseer telling me what to do anymore. Trying to tell me how to do a job I've been doing for 20 years. They've never lifted a hammer, and somehow they think they know better than I do. I don't want you, your friends, or your colleagues, your little buddies showing up here with baseball bats telling me when I can and can't work. That's what I want. And my brother? Priam looked over at Hecuba, and then back to Castor. He wants the train, Priam said, and then once again looked at his brother, who shook his head yes, with the biggest smile Priam had ever seen from him. He wants the train for what? asked Castor. He wants to own it. Title, deed, the whole thing, outright. The engine, the coal cart, the passenger compartments, everything. He wants the train. If you give it to him, he will help you. What are you going to do with it? The train is no good without the track. You're just going to sit and look at it all day? Castor seemed confused, and then looked between the two men and took a deep breath and let it out. <sighs> Sometimes, you have to sever a hand to save the body. What does that mean? Here's what I will do. If you help me, and as I hope the railroad falls to me, this section of track. When finished, it's supposed to run from Denver to Santa Fe. I will give it to you. The track, the train engine, and three others. You will have to form a rail company of your own. I will send a lawyer to help you do that. That company will own and run this line. Your union and all your men... I will release them to work for this company. So, you and your brother will be in charge. You may have to keep the details of who exactly you are secret, but all the decisions will be yours. Salary, working hours, working conditions, it'll be up to you. How you distribute the profits, share them with the people that work for you, keep them for yourselves, build a larger company. We shall see if workers can truly control the means of production. It won't be easy. It looks easy from a distance, but it will be yours to either succeed or fail at. Do we have a deal? Castor held out his hand to Priam. No deal until you tell me who you are. I'm Nathaniel Taggett. My father owns Taggett Oil. But what I want is the Baron's Railroad, and if you help me, I can snatch it right out of his grave. Castor said, holding his hand out, still waiting. All right. You have a deal. Priam shook Castor's hand. What do you need first? I need your brother to fix the train, Castor said. Without parts, I don't think I can, Hecuba explained. 
We won't be able to get them yet. Can you get it running? Castor asked. I'll have to bypass a lot of the safety valves, and we'll have to run it without instruments. We won't know the temperature, we won't know the pressure levels, and it's not going to look pretty. I think I can get it to move, though. But I have to drive it myself. That's all we'll need, Castor said. I will need men to help. From now on, little brother, the entire camp works for you. Prime smiled. This has been Helen of the Iron Horse, written by Paris Lee. Artwork by Helen Lee. Performed by Helen and Paris. All characters within are fictional and bear no intentional resemblance to anyone living or dead. Except, I guess, for Helen and Paris. See more of our work at edgeoftheworldart.com. If you would like to comment on the show or ask any question, please email us at helenoftheironhorse at gmail.com. The proceeding was made with the love and encouragement of all of our friends at the LA LGBT Center's Trans Lounge. Thank you.